Well, if you are our guest today, we're so glad you're here. Uh, my name is Gary. I'm our teaching pastor here at Wallenstein, an occasional worship leader. Um, we are excited to be finishing our series today on radical community with this message, as Ron has already shared, on radical missions. We're going to be reading these verses from the life of Jesus from Luke chapter 4, uh, four verses 14 to 21. Before we do that, I just want to add my encouragement for you for next Sunday. Uh, it's going to be pretty different for us to have a whole another church with us, uh, a church from another country. These are folks from Iran, predominantly uh, Persian uh, people, some who have come to know Jesus, some who have not. And why are we doing this? We're doing it for a couple of reasons. One, our former teaching pastor, Ron Seabrook, had helped Wallenstein forge a real friendship with this church. And so we want to honor that and see that continue in, in uh, various ways. And so we've invited them to come and join us. Why is this good for us? Well, hospitality is an important part of the Christian life. So we're going to do hospitality as a church. And we're going invite, to invite these folks to come and join us. Uh, we're going to worship with them. We're going to have some uh, translation next week. And then we're going to have a meal with them. I hope that we will all be uh, very warm and friendly. Uh, most of these people will speak a little bit of English. So if you say something to them in English, they'll probably understand. If they don't, as long as you're smiling and maybe a warm uh, handshake or something like that, they'll probably understand that too. So uh, we're looking forward to next Sunday, uh, Spirit of Truth joining us. The other announcement I just want to mention is Wednesday night. I'm ho hoping most of you who are younger parents know that this Wednesday, we're planning to have a time of prayer, a little bit of information about the reality of the challenge of educating our children in today's context and some of the possibilities and options that we have before us. But especially we just want to pray for our moms and dads. We want to pray, <coughs> excuse me, pray for our kids. And uh, we want to pray for the unity of the church because not every parent is educating their children in the same way. We want to be able to support each other in this and stand beside each other in spite of some of those differences. So that's going to happen Wednesday night. And if you are a young parent, we want to encourage you to come. And there's actually going to be child care for children up to grade two. And then there's programming from grade three and up uh, for, for kids that normally come to Kids Zone. So um, it's going to go from 7 to 8.15. <clears throat> if your kids are just a little bit young to be out that late, then maybe one of you, a mom or a dad, can come from your family and join us. So that's going to be Wednesday night at 7. So let's read together uh, from Luke chapter 4. Verses 14 to 21. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, and as was his custom, he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue was fastened on him. He began by saying to them today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. We are a radical community of believers, and perhaps one of the most radical things about us is that God has given us a radical mission. One of the things that I heard, it's a number of years ago now, I was at a pastor's conference, and I heard somebody say this. The problem with the church today, and this person was referring to the church in the West, North America, Western church, the problem with the church today is that we spend our tithe on ourselves. Now, when I heard that, that hit me between the eyes. And let's acknowledge that, you know, Scripture teaches us that we should give to the ministry that we receive in terms of being taught God's Word. And it totally makes sense if we're part of a church family that we're going to share in the expenses and the costs of keeping up a building and the ministry that's going to take place here. That's all right and good. But there's some truth to this. That our expectation is that the the money we might give to God ultimately is going to come back to us. We want to give, in many cases, uh, Christians today want to give so that they can have a fancy church building or, or, or opportunities for pleasure and amusement within the church context or uh, big and fancy and expensive programming for their children. But is that really our mission? Or does God's, is God's intention that the flow of our sacrifice, of our giving, of our ministry would not just be for us, not predominantly for us? How do we understand mission or even ministry? I think for many of us, we tend to think of ministry and the Christian mission in this way. Ministry and mission is is what goes on inside the walls of a church. Well, the first problem with that, of course, is that the church isn't a building. The church, according to Scripture, is made up of people. The people of God are the church. But there's also a problem to think that ministry is solely about what takes place within the walls of a building or with even, even, even within the confines of a community of believers. There's no doubt that there's biblical ministry that should happen, and we've heard about some of that this morning. There's all kinds of ways that we are supposed to minister to one another within the confines of our church family. People who've been gifted to teach are meant to teach each other. People who are gifted to serve or show mercy are meant to do that in the context of the Christian community. That's totally appropriate. The problem is that that might be the limit for some of us in terms of how we think, about what it means to serve God, about what it means to have a ministry or to be on a mission, or even to follow in the footsteps of Jesus in terms of how he thought about mission. And the reality is, I believe that scripture teaches this, that there should be an outward, and by the way, I mean, you gotta be impressed with what I came up with here with this pulsing (laughs) green arrows today. Thank you so much. Yeah, anyway, never mind that. (laughs) This is what, this is what I want us to understand when it comes to us having a radical mission, as a radical community of God's people, is that the ministry that we do doesn't just, some of it will take place here, should take place here, 
but ultimately that we, <clears throat> we have this mission that needs to be pushing us, this relentless love, this relentless compassion and concern for the people outside the walls of our church and outside the, the boundaries of our community, that we have this relentless passion to reach them. That's why we've said that to be all for Christ means that we want to reach all for Christ. And so we want to have a, a big picture of this, and I'm hoping that uh, this message today, this passage will help us to wrap our minds and our heart around this idea that the mission is out there, not just in here. By the way, some people would say that we, the reason we minister in here is to prepare us to minister out there. I think that's an important way to think of it. Some people would say this. We minister in here by ministering out there. Did you ever think of that? That we're only actually encouraging each other and discipling each other and becoming more like Christ together as we go and as we live this life on mission. Well, how does this passage from Luke chapter 4 relate to any of this? Just look at it again with me. What we're finding here is Jesus ultimately is going to be describing his, <coughs> excuse me, his ministry. It would seem that this is early on in his ministry. His fame was starting to spread. And here now he's traveled back to his hometown, his home region. And he's going to end up in the synagogue. We read that that was his custom to do so. He was a faithful Jewish man. And he must have already been come to be seen as a kind of rabbi because the scroll was handed to him. He was looked to to be the one who was going to teach the scriptures that day. And so he chose to read from the prophet Isaiah from chapter 61. And these verses are quoted for us here in Luke 4, 18 and 19, quoting from Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is on me. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, etc. Now Jesus reads these words and then he closes the book, which is interesting. Everyone's looking at him. And he says this, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So what is Jesus doing here? What he does is he turns to a portion of Isaiah's prophecy, Isaiah 61, which was clearly a prophecy about the coming Messiah. From Isaiah's perspective, when he wrote it and when God inspired Isaiah to write this, it was future. It was, it was a prophecy that was meant to provide the Jewish people with hope and with some understanding about what their Messiah would be like when the, when the king finally shows up, when the Savior finally comes, this is what he'll look like. This is the way he'll behave. This is what he's going to do. And the reason that God gave that prophecy is so that the Jewish people would be able to recognize him when he came. So Jesus, following in line with God's own intention in giving Isaiah 61, the Spirit's intention in inspiring Isaiah 61 makes total sense that Jesus in his own ministry would turn people's attention back to that prophecy which was speaking about him and draw their attention to that. Why would he do that? Well, it's because they needed to come to believe that he was the Messiah. They needed to come to believe that he was who he really said he was. He was the Messiah, the Savior that God was sending to the people of Israel and to the whole world. 
So he draws their attention to this and he says it's fulfilled. Now, if you read on, and in other parts of the gospel, you'll find out that these people from <clears throat> the Lord's hometown didn't like this. Jesus would eventually say, prophets, uh, prophets never without honor except in his hometown. People can't accept, his hometown folks can't accept the prophet. But the other cool thing that we find about this is we find a statement, a purpose statement, a ministry vision for what the Messiah would do. And when Jesus says it's fulfilled, he's confirming what should be obvious to us, that the things that Isaiah wrote about the future Messiah, Jesus was actually doing those things. He was showing us what his mission was. So look at it again. Spirit of the Lord is on me to, because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, sent me to proclaim freedom from the, for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, which is me, because I should have worn my glasses today. I'm trying here. To set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus says, that's me. So in these words, we find a description of the ministry of Jesus. So look at these things a little bit more closely with me. First of all, don't you find it interesting that the first thing that Isaiah says about the Messiah, Jesus confirms for us, is that the spirit of the Lord would be on him. Reminds me of what we talked about last week, that to be a radical follower of Jesus requires of us that we are filled with the radical power and presence of God. Look back at verse 14, a simple description that Luke gives us about the ministry of Jesus. He says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. That's interesting that just two verses before this, a couple of verses before this, we see that that's actually true, that Jesus was actually filled with the Holy Spirit. Now Luke's gospel brings us out more than any of the others that the power that Jesus demonstrated in his earthly ministry was actually the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was being an example to it. Even though he was divine, even though he was the Son of God, he was modeling for the rest of us what it would look like to live a life of being filled with the Holy Spirit. He so emptied himself of his divine powers and so, and so became human that when he did live with the power of God in his life, he could say, that's the Holy Spirit in me. What's amazing about this is we are asked to follow the same pattern. Jesus did what he's going to call us to do, and so here's the first thing, empowered by the Spirit. The second thing we find about the ministry of Jesus in these verses is this, that he proclaimed. First of all, verse 18, he proclaimed good news to the poor. Very next sentence, he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. And then verse 19, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now here it is, it's so emphasized here and everywhere in the Gospels and through the rest of the New Testament that the primary ministry of Jesus was to proclaim the gospel of salvation. Earlier in Luke, well, actually, no, this is later. This is later in the same chapter, Luke chapter 4. Jesus is going to say this to his disciples. I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also because that is why I was sent. Couldn't be any clearer than this, that his primary ministry, his number one concern was to tell people the good news. So we see that in Jesus. Everywhere he went, he taught. What was he teaching? He was teaching the good news of salvation, of God's kingdom. 
God's compassion for sinners. Everywhere he went, he taught, he spoke, he proclaimed. That's the ministry of Jesus. We see something else, though, in these verses. We see an emphasis on those in need. Do you see that here? First of all, he's proclaiming good news to who? To the poor. And then we read of prisoners. We read of those who were blind. And of course, in those days, to be blind was to be financially destitute. You couldn't work. Uh, people <clears throat> theologically looked at you as though you, you must be being judged by God for you're your blind because you're a sinner. So people would, would think of people in blindness as, as being judged, as being unworthy, as being less than, and they would treat them that way. And then, of course, we read about the oppressed. <clears throat> so here we see this emphasis on a ministry to those in need. Do we find that in the, in the Lord's ministry as we read the Gospels? Do we find an emphasis? Do we find that the people who were in need tended to come to Jesus freely? They felt comfortable with him? Do we find that Jesus seemed to bend towards, move towards, or as it says clearly in the Gospels, have a deep compassion for? Remember the one crowd? He said they're like sheep without a shepherd. You just sense the Lord's compassion and concern for people who were in need. But it raises this question. We think about these people who are blind, people in poverty, people being oppressed, imprisoned. And we ask this question then, <clears throat> did Jesus eradicate poverty, prisons, blindness, and oppression in his ministry? Did he do that? Now we could say he could have, and let's be honest, a lot of the Jewish people, even when they began to think that, yes, Jesus must be the Messiah, their assumption was <clears throat> that he was going to overthrow the Roman Empire who'd come in to occupy the land of Israel, who was oppressing the land of Israel. Remember all those stories about the tax collectors? <laughs> Jewish men who worked for the Roman Empire to collect taxes, to pillage, in a sense, the Jewish people to, uh, uh, to, to make Rome and Caesar wealthy. People thought that's what Jesus should do. In one case, in John's Gospel, it says that they wanted to make him king by force. And they wanted him by force to overthrow Rome. And yet, it's not hard for us to answer this question and recognize that he didn't eradicate poverty, prisons, blindness, and oppression. Let me show you an example of this from later in Luke's Gospel. And it's when John the Baptist had been thrown in prison. He's in prison and he sends his own disciples to Jesus with this question, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Now why would John the Baptist be doubting Jesus? He was the forerunner. He was the one who announced Jesus. He was the one who pointed at Jesus to his own disciples and said, hey, there he is. That's the Lamb of God. He was the one who, when Jesus said, came to him and said, baptize me, he said, no, no, you, you should baptize me. He knew who Jesus was. God had revealed to John the Baptist that Jesus was the Messiah. How could he be asking this question? And the answer is probably because he knew Isaiah 61. And his assumption was that since Jesus is the Messiah and since he'd been thrown in prison, the fulfillment of Isaiah 61's prophecy would be, Jesus, get me out of here. But he didn't. 
And so John sends the question. Now he's doubting. Are you really the one? And notice, shockingly, the answer that Jesus sends back to him is a regurgitation, a paraphrase of sorts, of the same thing he's read here from Isaiah 61 here in chapter 4 of Luke. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is proclaimed to the poor. That's directly from Isaiah 61. And then he'll go on to say, don't be offended at me, John. Point is, Jesus again is saying, he's pointing us back to Isaiah 61. He's saying, I am fulfilling these things. So how did he? If he didn't eradicate poverty, prisons, blindness, and oppression, what did he do? Well, he didn't eradicate poverty, for example, but he fed poor, poor, uh, poor people. We have at least two amazing stories, one where he feeds 5,000 men plus women and children, one where he feeds 4,000 men plus women and children. There's another story that doesn't really speak of the food element of this, but in the next chapter of Luke, Luke chapter 5, is where Jesus gives his disciples that incredible catch of fish, two large boats sinking so full of fish, and who's on the shore watching this? A crowd. Who ate the fish? I'm pretty sure the crowd did. Jesus didn't eradicate poverty, but he fed poor people. Jesus didn't eradicate blindness, but he healed some blind people. And we can say this, Jesus rescued people from spiritual captivity and oppression and promised future hope. The primary fulfillment of Isaiah 61 wasn't necessarily at that moment the eradication of blindness and poverty and oppression. And yet he did miracles that were reflections of those things. The primary purpose of his first coming was to provide a means for people to have their spiritual poverty eradicated and their spiritual blindness eradicated and their spiritual oppression eradicated. And how would he do that? He would do that by going to the cross, as we've heard and remembered already this morning. Now he gives this future hope. The last thing he reads from the book of Isaiah is to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's looking forward. And the ultimate fulfillment of that statement will be when Jesus comes, not the first time, but the second time. <clears throat> and when Jesus comes the second time, not as Savior, but as King, he will eradicate all these things from the earth. But in his first coming... He was providing a means by which all of these things could be eradicated on a spiritual level through his death on the cross. So let's go back to the ministry of Jesus. We've seen that he's empowered by the Spirit. We've seen his emphasis on proclaiming the good news. We've seen that he emphasizes ministry to those in need. And then we see in his ministry, in terms of those times when he fed the poor, when he healed the blind. What was he doing? Well, I'm going to say it this way. He was validating the message with compassion and kindness. I believe this is why those poor people came to Jesus. Yes, yeah, some of them were just hungry. Some of them just wanted a healing. Maybe they didn't even have a hunger for the spiritual need that Jesus intended to uh, heal in them. But the, but the thing that he was doing all the way through these miraculous acts that he did was that he was validating the message. He was demonstrating his compassion and kindness. You see, the thing is, if we go to somebody and 
talk with them about their soul and talk with them about their need of a savior and talk with them about their sin. And if they're a person who's suffering on a physical level, maybe they're in poverty, maybe they have some obvious glaring need and you smile at them and tell them that they have a spiritual need and do nothing about the physical need, your message about the spiritual need rings pretty hollow, doesn't it? James talks about that. Like, don't, don't say to someone, don't say, God bless you, someone who's clearly, obviously in need and do nothing about their physical issue. Don't, don't bless them and say, God, you know, go in peace. We don't do that. We follow in the footsteps of our Savior, our King. We do ministry the way that he did. We emphasis proclamation while at the same time showing compassion and kindness. If there ever was a time in Christian history when Christian people, if there ever was a culture where Christian people needed to validate the message, isn't it ours? Don't we live in a world that has become so skeptical, even antagonistic towards all religions, but maybe especially to our religion? Hasn't it become common for people to refer to us as bigots? If there ever was a time when we had to validate our message with the ministry of Jesus, a ministry of compassion and kindness. Now hear what I'm saying here. There are some Christian traditions, circles, churches who have said, we're not gonna proclaim anymore. It's not, the message isn't popular. People, people are offended by the message. So we'll just do the compassion and kindness piece. No, that's not faithful to Christ. We will never cease to proclaim the good news, but we will do so in the way he did, validating the message with compassion and kindness. Now you say, what does that have to do with us? So you're telling us about the ministry of Jesus. What does that have to do with us as his people? It has everything to do with us because Jesus said this. John 17, as he's praying to his father about us, we already heard Ron share that this morning. He says, as I, as I sent, as you sent, sorry, he's praying to his father, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. And then later, Jesus says, he's speaking after his resurrection, speaking to his disciples, he says, as the father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Point is this, that this is why we're called the body of Christ. Because we are meant to carry on his work. We're meant to be his hands, his feet, his mouth in this world. We're meant to continue doing the very same things he did. Why do we have the Gospels? Because one of the things we need is a pattern, a model. This is how we do ministry. We have it in the life of Jesus. And that's, that's why we are the radical community now, called to be on this radical mission. And this is why we say we're followers of Jesus. I mean, some of us want to follow Jesus almost anywhere. Happy to follow him to church. Happy to follow him into certain forms of ministry. But when it comes to following him out there, into hard places, to hard people, to, to, to real suffering, when it comes to speaking about our faith and telling people about Jesus, and I'm including myself here, and we don't follow Jesus there. And we're not radical. 
But this is what scripture calls us to. This is what God calls us to. This is what Jesus is calling us to. So let's take that same list that we just saw from Jesus. This is the ministry of Jesus. And now let's see that that's the exact same ministry of the church. Is the church meant to be empowered by the spirit like Jesus was? Answer, yes. Jesus said to his first disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. And how many places are there throughout the New Testament that challenge and encourage us to be filled with the Spirit? We should never think that we get up in the morning and we're going to try hard today. Today I'm going to do it. Today I'm going to be a Christian. Today I'm going to tell somebody about Jesus. Today I'm going to pass on the compassion of Christ. I'm going to pull up my bootstraps and I'm going to do it. No, you're not. What you are and what I am is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We are jars of clay. And in my case, pretty cracked, pretty broken. And our only hope is for this jar of clay to get filled up with something far greater, far more power, far more effect. And who is that? That is the Holy Spirit. We are radical only by the empowering of the Holy Spirit, as we learned last week. The ministry of the church is to proclaim, proclaim, proclaim. 2 Corinthians 5, he's committed to us the message of reconciliation, meaning the, rest, the message that brings reconciliation between God and sinners. That's the gospel. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. Oh, he was just talking to the disciples there. No, he's talking to all believers. This is our job. Folks, I'm like a lot of you. I'm not good at this. I feel fear when it comes to speaking up, telling someone that I don't think wants to hear. Some of us attempt to try and push this off by saying it's not my gift. Proclaiming is not a spiritual gift. That means that some do it and some don't. No, proclaiming is for all of us. Some of us are more naturally good at this. Some of us have personalities. We don't give a rip what people think about us. Not hard. But we all proclaim. Scripture would tell us that this is not a burden. This is not an onerous obligation. The Bible says how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. This is our privilege Remember in the Gospels when the, when the demons would recognize Jesus and they'd start speaking through a person that they were possessing and they'd start announcing that that's Jesus? And Jesus would rebuke the demons and say, be quiet. Why? Because that is not a privilege given to demons to announce Jesus. It's a privilege that's given to the people of God. This is our privilege. This is our task. This is our job. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, I don't care how weak you think you are, how in, uh, unable you are to think of the right words, with the help of the Holy Spirit, we can do this. And I know many of you are. The ministry of the church is like the ministry of Jesus, powered by the Spirit, proclaiming the good news, and then an emphasis on those in need. You ever notice this in the Bible? I mean, sometimes I feel like, well, this isn't fair, especially those of us who've grown up in North America. We're pretty wealthy. We have all we need. Then we read the Bible, and it almost seems like God likes poor people better than rich people. Makes me a little uncomfortable, and yet that's the reality of God. 
The problem isn't that God loves, uh, or the reality isn't that God loves poor people more than rich people. The, the problem is that there's a lot of us that don't think we're poor, right? Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit. Or how about when Jesus said, I've come to save sinners. It's not the healthy have come for, it's the sick. What was his point? Well, his point was actually, you're all sick. You're all in spiritual poverty. But if we think we aren't, then we're not likely to receive the good news of salvation. The reason that God emphasizes those in need is because those who know they're in need are the ones who are ready to be rescued. The people who don't think they have need are not likely to respond to the message. And this is a great ministry strategy. And it's not that we don't share the good news with someone who's wealthy and someone who's got it all together. God saves people like that. Some of us were those people. But it's a tremendous ministry strategy actually in your school, in your place of work, to be watching for those who are hurting, who are suffering. People who are experiencing some form of poverty or pain. Look for those people. And what do we do? We go in with the compassion and the kindness of Jesus. And we expect that that compassion and kindness is going to open doors and, and we are there ready to proclaim, intending to proclaim the good news. Isn't it true that people who are suffering tend to be more open and ready to hear the good news than those who aren't? Look for these people. This is the ministry of God. You know, the whole story of the Bible is God having compassion on people like us, people in need. And so we mirror that. It was the ministry of Jesus, and we can do that as well. I just saw the clock and didn't realize we're almost done. Galatians 2.9, here's, here's Paul having a, a conversation with Cephas or Peter. And he says, we agreed that we would go to the Gentiles, they to the Jews. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. So it's awesome that we're doing a food can, a food can, we can do a food drive. Sharon said it so much better <laughs> than I can. It's the ministry of the church. We validate the message with compassion and kindness. Jesus said this, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Folks, there's so many ways that we're seeing this here, and I'm just so excited and encouraged. We've heard about some of these things today. It is important that ministry happens within the boundaries of our church family, but it's also crucial that ministry flows outward from us as individuals, that we are seeking with a relentless passion to find people who need Jesus, to meet people, to talk to people, to be kind to people, how is this true in your life? How is this true in your home? Moms and dads, are we teaching our children to look for opportunities to show kindness? Usually, if, if I'm near my kids when they're heading out the door, to, the door to school, I say, shine the light. Proclaim the good news. Show kindness. How are we doing this as a church? May God help us. May God convict us. If you are sensing the Holy Spirit nudging you, and he will, it's funny how as human beings uh, we will always default back to just staying within ourselves focused inward the Holy Spirit is always going to be nudging us outward look outward look to others we're just going to briefly uh, sing one last song and then we will close our service for today